defund the police. Three words that have become a rallying cry for advocates of police accountability and racial justice across the country. Here in Seattle, the defund movement is backed by a majority of the city council that wants to cut the police department budget by 50%. But Police Chief Carmen Best says that's a bad idea. I don't think we should just lop off half of the police department uh, without a real significant plan about how we're going to move forward in public safety, how we're going to make sure we have equity and fairness, and how we break down systems that have historically been um, disparate and had disparate outcomes for people of color. Coming up, the movement for change and the debate over defunding the police. This is a special edition of Life on the Margins. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Welcome to this special edition of Life on the Margins. I'm Enrique Cerna. Recently, we wrapped up our first season of this podcast with a live stream at Town Hall Seattle. And I'm Marcus Harrison Green. One of our guests, Ijeoma Lua, author of the best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race, gave an excellent explanation of why she thinks the police department should be defunded. We encourage all of you to listen to that explanation on that episode. Shortly afterwards, Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best accepted our invitation to discuss why she is opposed to the defunding movement. We then decided to put together a three-part series with the chief, a city council member, and a community activist to hear all sides of this debate. This is part one. Well, my brother Marcus, uh, so much going on in the world and locally. We're talking about uh, the Seattle Police Department and whether to defund them, which is an interesting uh, idea especially at this time. Obviously, it has gained speed because of the killing of George Floyd, the protests that happened after that. And now Seattle, I think, is becoming the center of this debate about uh, defunding the police. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it has become the center of the debate and, you know, it continues to gain some momentum. We have seven city council members who, well, depending on who you whom you ask, have, <laughs> have uh, said that they are going to be supportive of a deep cut to the Seattle Police Department. Now, some have said that they would, you know, be supportive of 50%. Others have said, you know, well, they need to kind of look at that. It's, uh, it is an interesting conversation. I mean, I, I will say, like anything in, in our, you know, in our public budget, it's, you know, something that people are saying, hey, maybe we need to look at this. Is this being as effective as it possibly can be, or is it not? Um, and then you have critics, obviously, who are saying, well, you can't, you know, govern quote unquote, by sloganeering or Twitter. And so, you know, where did this, uh, you know, defund the police in terms of the specifics, you know, what are they and where are they? And, you know, you do have community groups who are meeting with city council uh, members right now in these, in these current times trying to, you know, work out the details here. And I think it's interesting, right? It's, it's you have much, Seattle, much like other uh, cities, they, you know, uh, part of their budget, a majority of the budget, I should say, goes to public safety and law enforcement. And so we're asking, especially right now in these times of COVID and economic precarity, what is the most important thing that, that we should have right now? Some people are saying that it, it isn't necessarily, you know, having all of those resources, financial resources tied up in law enforcement. Yeah. It's also become a political hot potato because obviously, <laughs> uh, 
Donald Trump is using it as a campaign item to press, and uh, we're seeing uh, controversy to the south in Portland where you have uh, protests that have been going on and uh, rioting. Federal officers uh, deployed by Homeland Security and a lot of question marks there about what those fellows are doing, people being picked up off the street for questioning, and officials in Portland and in Oregon saying, hey, what are you doing here, federal government? Right. Well, not just officials, also the ACLU, which has chosen to sue uh, the federal government because they're saying this it looks like something that resembles you know, the novel 1984, where you you have people in un, unmarked federal agents who are picking up people off the street, you know, without necessarily either reading them their Miranda rights or identifying themselves as officers. And so it's, we live in some crazy times, my friend. I have to ask you, you again, I mean, you know, I know history repeats itself, but it, certainly in my lifetime, and I want to ask in yours, have you seen anything like this? I mean, just in terms of just the coalescence of all this stuff. Well, I think if you go back to the 60s and 1968 and during that whole period, even in Seattle, there was a time where there was a list of journalists and others that were looked on as uh, people that were activists in the community or journalists or whatever, they're, uh, they tended to lean to the left or whatever, and they maybe were looked at at the time as communist sympathizers <laughs> and these types of right. things. But they were targeted by Seattle police. So it reminds me of that kind of period. The question now is, okay, <laughs> why is this happening? Uh, under really what circumstances do we need to have federal it's like federal troops in, in a place like Portland doing this. Because as I understood it, things were fairly peaceful there. Obviously, Portland has the um, anarchists that tend to come and disrupt things. May have done that here recently in the protests that we had as we speak. Uh, we're on a Monday. Past weekend, we've had protests. And then uh, on the Sunday, we had some rioting with a whole different group that came in and caused trouble. I don't really know as we speak who they were. But the problem, I, I, I do want to say it didn't look like they were, at least from the news coverage I saw, it didn't look like there were a lot of black and brown hands <laughs> as, yeah. as a part of those protesters. I just want to say that. Yeah, and that could very well be the case. So you have disruptors involved here. So it makes things even much more confusing and disruptive. So you're right, we live in some really interesting times, but I don't think this is something that hasn't happened before. The biggest question is how far are we going to let this go? And it brings even more uh, you know, concern. It's an election year. And what's this going to mean down the road here? So, right. And how far are we going to get you know, truly with you know, defunding the police? Is it going to just be a, a slogan or is it going to be something... Right. Where people actually look at sort of line item by line item. I know there was some great reporting by Erica Barnett, and she talked about how the, uh, you know, a lot of the uptick, if you will, in the increase in the uh, Seattle Police Department budget is actually due uh, to the fact that a lot of these officers are, are making high end salaries, shall we say, versus, you know, their, you know, versus this being anything to do with actual, you know, public safety. And so I think. You know, I, I got to say it like this. I mean, I think even just the, the reasonable stance is that, 
you know, everything should be looked at, quite frankly. Right. I, I agree with that. I, I think saying we're going to cut it by 50 percent is uh, that that's unnerving. I would think that a lot of white people, even hearing the term defund the police, get scared. You know, and I think that that's probably not the great slogan to have at this time, defund the police, but that's me. I, I do think that there needs to be a look at things. We need to maybe reimagine what policing is all about, but that should be an ongoing thing. Uh, I think to come in and just chop it or try to do so is not something that, that I would feel that comfortable with. I find it interesting, too, that City Council President Lorena Gonzalez what now is in that camp of, you know, looking at the police budget and, and I think supporting the idea of a 50% cut. She was before uh, in support of increasing uh, the number of officers and I think supportive of the police department. I think to the extent of that she didn't want them out there violating the consent degree and things like that because she played a role in a lot of that happening as a private attorney uh, representing individuals that had been folk that had been the target of uh, police brutality. Well, that's so, what I got to ask you, Enrique. I mean, as a cynic amongst us, <laughs> how much of this is with elected officials? You yeah. know, how much of this is them Politics? seeing the way the wind's blowing? Right. And, and this is at, versus this is, you know, a genuine the awakening to some things like I mean what what is your, what do you come down on that you know that I wonder about it myself uh, let's face it uh, Jenny Durkin is Seattle mayor right now is under the gun because there's a recall effort uh, although she's trying to stymie it right um, I and think, three democratic organizations just came out the 37th right. district 43rd and I think the 46th in, in the in the, the city to, to say that they supported recall and I think there could be in a positioning there, either by Lorena Gonzalez, and, and I also think that uh, Council Member Mosqueda is also, I think she has made it very clear that she would, I think, like to run for mayor <laughs> and be there. So, yeah, I suppose that would be a way to look at these things and wonder if that is a part of it as well. So we have some interesting dynamics happening here and obviously um, the seattle police chief carmen best is caught in the middle and because as an african-american woman as police chief you know been with the department for what close to 30 years uh, and now is in this position of uh, saying okay look i got to defend my department and also she's got to you know be close to the mayor to a certain extent because that was a person that appointed her. Now, I, I think also more than anything else, if I were in her position, I, I probably would take the same stance of, wait a minute, I'm not going to take a 50% cut and I need a plan. Now, she talks about that a lot. And right. uh, as we are going to hear in the conversation that we're going to have with her. But, Enrique, but, is there any, seriously, is there any job you would want less maybe other than Donald <laughs> Trump's press secretary than, than Carmen Best at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I think that she is in one of the toughest positions, rocking a hard spot, uh, because let's face it, it it's almost a no win. Right, she, you're going to piss off somebody, right? right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's either going to be yeah. the people in so, your bot, yeah. The rank and file, the public, the police union, all of those things. So it's it's just a real tough position to, to be in at this point. But I also think that we're probably going to hear more from people that are going to 
uh, rise up and uh, really speak out about defunding police from, I suppose, the mainstream, you would call, in Seattle, because uh, voicing their concerns. Uh, and, and I think there needs to be a debate about this. It can't just be, okay, we're going to go boom and cut. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you look at what's happening in, I want to say, was it Minneapolis, where right. they have decided essentially to, quote unquote, abolish, abolish the police, which, you know, made for a great headline. But at the end of the day, right, I mean, the, the, the police are still there they're, and they're saying that they're trying to do some phased out approach with talking with community. I have to wonder what exactly is their plan and what is going to happen. I mean, you know, I mean, we have a city that definitely tries to, I'll say, be on the right side of right, if you will. But I mean, you even look at when they try, when our city council attempted to divest from Wells Fargo, right? They ended right. up not having necessarily a plan <laughs> of what to do <laughs> with the uh, with the city coffers, and they ended up going back to Wells Fargo. And it's like you don't want these things to defeat the purpose of, of what their you know, their aim is. And I guess that's my concern is like making sure that the devil, you know, the devil is always in the details. And right. so, how do you do it so that? you ultimately don't defeat the purpose. We just had it, something, you know, happened with CHOP, where despite it, potentially the, the good intentions of it, right, you had people who maybe were, you know, v- very supportive of it, and then they saw some of the you know, reports of the shootings, killings, and so forth, and it was like, ah, well, if I had to, you know, get on the side of either anarchy or the police, you know, some people chose the police. And so I, I think tactics and strategy are always an important thing when you're trying to make change. Before we hear from Carmen Best, we want to say thank you to Town Hall Seattle for being our co-production partner during our first season, and especially to Jenny Palmer, who is the digital manager there and who co-hosted with us as we launched the podcast. Jenny, thank you for helping us establish life on the margins and for all your hard work. We very much appreciate you. We turn now to Seattle's top cop and an interview I recorded with her on July 17th. Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hey, good afternoon, Enrique. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about this term, defunding the police. When you when did you first hear that? You know, it's relatively new to me. I would say in the last few weeks that it's uh, not only has it uh, become a term that I've learned to recognize, I've been seeing it every day, daily, uh, and trying to determine and ascertain exactly uh, what that means. So what have you determined? Yeah, well, you know, honestly, it depends on who you're talking to, uh, what that means. When we were uh, first involved in uh, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter demonstrations, I saw many signs that said defund SPD and defund police. I wasn't really sure what that meant, but it sort of caught on. We've heard from people that means like, you know, from abolish the police wholesale to taking away uh, certain parts of the budget. Here more recently, it has become a cry to defund the police department by 50%. And that's what's been um, talked about uh, at our city council between uh, a few different groups. One uh, group called Decriminalize Seattle and another group that's out there as well. So that's how we're looking at it as the potential to defund the Seattle Police Department by 50% is where we've landed at this point. And you have made it very clear that you're strongly against that. I am, because 
I think that this needs to be really thought out and done in a way that provides for public safety. There are a lot of discussions about what to do uh, with the police department, how we might change and evolve. As you know, we've been under a federal consent decree for almost a decade now, following all of the reforms uh, that were, we're required to, re to follow through the federal court and the federal monitor and the Department of Justice. And those things are put in place essentially to build trust, to build transparency, so that people can have more faith and confidence in the police department. Yet here we are in 2020, another uh, black man, African-American male is killed unjustly and everybody sees it. And it just shows that we really hadn't made all of the strides that we need to. Well, I think the reforms are really important. Clearly there's another area, uh, another set of circumstances that we need to address, uh, to address that is, to um, make sure that we have equity and fairness in our systems. And people are questioning the criminal justice system and the education system and the healthcare system and the inequities in all those systems. So I, I too, I think we need to work on them. That said, I don't think we should just lop off half of the police department without a real significant plan about how we're gonna move forward in public safety how we're gonna make sure we have equity and fairness and how we break down systems that have historically been um, disparate and had disparate outcomes for people of color. Do you feel that those that are proposing the 50% cut don't have a plan? I absolutely don't think they have a plan. I can tell you, we respond to 800,000 calls for service a year. You know, before this defund issue came up, it was very clear city council had awarded us $1.6 million to work on recruiting and hiring because we were understaffed in the police department. Now here we are several months later and they are considering defunding and cutting the department in half. That to me is not rational and it's not good effective public safety. Look, we respond to calls and some of those calls might be better approached by other entities. I mean, I think we can all have that discussion, but to do that, you have to have a plan in place. Who's gonna respond? At two in the morning, and I, and I can tell you, as sure as I'm looking at you, that I have been down at Third and Yesler at two in the morning. I've driven down there myself to see what is happening. And the only people I saw out there were people who were vulnerable and the cops. I didn't see social workers, mental health providers, or anyone else. And clearly there were people there who could use those services. So if you're going to turn that function over, and that might even be a better way, you're gonna to need to hire the people, uh, where are they gonna respond from, what's that communication effort, how are they gonna get calls for service, who's gonna track what they're doing and the outcomes. I mean, all that needs to be in place, and so far I haven't heard any plans to do any of that. So in the meantime, you're gonna hack off you know, 50% of the police department, those calls for service and those needs don't go away, and who's gonna take care of it? And I haven't heard a plan of how that's gonna happen. Now, I have uh, seen on social media uh, Nikita Oliver, who you know well, community activist and attorney, uh, has you know, advocated you know, defunding the police, been very outspoken about all of this, says she gets very furious when she hears you say that there's no plan because she points to the fact that you know, they actually are, are proposing basically more mental health services, less... Uh, efforts by the police to show up armed, 
looking at different methods of how you approach policing, but dealing with kind of the social ills. Yeah, that we have. You know, I, I find that to be great theory. Those are great theory. Those are great principles, great ideology to work toward. But that is not a plan. To say that we want to work to have people who are more inclined to be social workers or uh, mental health professionals, I think that's great. I, I'm not against that, and, and that we can be very well aligned. But the plan means you need to hire X amount, let's say 300, I don't know what the number is. You're gonna to need to hire those 300 people. You're gonna to need to have medical, dental, paycheck, coming to those folks, a place for them to operate out of, phones or radios or some way to communicate to them when the calls are dispatched, a number to call for them to be dispatched. There needs to be a identifiable plan. And you know, because theory is great, in theory this will all work, and, and maybe it will, but I have not seen the plan. So to say we're going to cut off people's pay, their pension, uh, everything else for them coming to work and not showing how you're going to replace it is not a plan. That's not a plan to me. That's theoretical, untested theory, by the way, about what might be able to happen. So again, not opposed to that. On that, I think we can line up and say, hey, this might be a better way, but we got to figure out how it's going to be done. Uh, it just can't be you know, some ideas that are out there theoretically speaking, without something firm to fall back on. Because I know, I've been here almost 30 years in this job, you know, I know that those calls for service, those needs will not stop simply because we don't have 700 officers in the field. And if they don't have something in place for that, there'll be a problem. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about the Capitol Hill organized protest zone, where police were not coming in for a period of time, where we were on the outskirts sort of having negotiated our way into this, you know, over time it became more and more problematic and it just became lawless. And I really feel like that period of time in that area is an example of what can happen if you don't have something in place and to allow a lawless area. Now it won't be just the Capitol Hill, it'll be the entire city. So I really do have a problem with not, with not having a thought out, well thought out, well structured plan, not just theory. So you're looking for specifics. Absolutely. Not generics. Yes, absolutely. Because if your house is burglarized, Enrique, and someone, if you hear a burglar in your home, you're not going to want to hear somebody, if you call for services or help, say that, well, we're thinking that we might send so-and-so to your home. That's just not going to work. You're going to want somebody uh, to show up who's trained to deal with uh, whatever outcome is going to happen there. And that's what I'm looking for. Do you think there needs to be more reform in the Seattle Police Department? I think uh, as far as the Department of Justice and those reforms, we've done a really good job. But I do think that we need to look at, I call it re-envisioning, you can call it reimagining, but we need to look at better ways to have real-time engagement that's community-led. Because while I think we're a much better agency, because you can look on our dashboards, we have transparency, we have body-worn cameras, we have in-car video, we have a force review board with civilian people on it. We have all this stuff. We have a community police commission. We have an office of inspector general. We have an office of police accountability, all those accountability entities. And yet, George Floyd is murdered, and we can see that bubbling underneath, there was a lot of angst and frustration with the criminal justice system. Even though that happened elsewhere, 
we you know the effects are local. So I think we do need to be working on how we might better address some of those other injustice issues that affect us, that give us, I think in some cases, post-traumatic stress, because it, it feels like we can't go a week without seeing some other incident somewhere in this country where a person of color is unjustly treated. And so even with all the reforms in place, until we address and acknowledge that issue, we're gonna continue to have problems. So I don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think the reforms that have been in place have made us better, but we still need to continue working in some other avenues and other veins uh, to build trust that we need to have. What about the hiring of your officers? Obviously, if there's 50% cuts, you're not going to be able to hire too many officers. And, you know, you have made uh, efforts to try to bring more officers in. But when I say about the hiring of your officers, how many and what percentage have come from the military? Because I think there's people's perceptions that there's that militaristic a view of Seattle police. You know, I'll have to get that number for you. It's probably not as high as many people would think, but I don't have it in front of me, so I don't want to give you the wrong number, but I'll have somebody find that and give it to you exactly. Because there are some folks, myself included, who served in the military who come into uh, law enforcement, but that's not the vast majority of folks uh, that are on the police force. In recent times, we've looked really hard to make sure we have as much diversity and inclusion as we can to bring people onto uh, the police department. Really looking to bring more people of color, uh, more blacks, more women, Latino, Asian, all the different ethnic groups. We've really reached out to try to bring them into our police department. And we've done a really good job, I would say, over the last five years of doing so. Really record high numbers of diversity hiring. And uh, if we have to, um, you know, if we have to end up laying off those folks, it'd be the last people, the most newest people that go, which reflects the highest level of diversity that we've had at the police department. So there are a lot of considerations about what we do and how we do it, what makes sense for a city. We have 750,000 people in the city of Seattle. We have a police force with less than 1,400 people. Uh, that's not a lot of officers that are handling um, 800,000 calls for service every year. So to think that somehow we were even staffed well enough to deal with um, the number of calls that we have uh, is a problem, and certainly cutting in that half is going to be a bigger problem. I will say this, I know that some of what people are talking about is shifting some of our services to other people for other responses, and that, that will likely make a difference. Again, it just needs to be thought out about what that looks like and the timing of doing that. So to be clear, uh, you're not opposed to kind of reframing how the department works but you are opposed to having a, a cut that you feel doesn't really have, um, it's just a number, it's a percentage. And you feel like you have no real sense of what those cuts would do to the department. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm very concerned about it. So I, look, some of the stuff that we do could be handled by other areas. I mean, we can acknowledge that. So let's work to see what those areas are. It's not the, you know, how we're doing, but what we're doing. And maybe we're not responding to people who are in crisis uh, anymore. Maybe that's another entity that's doing that. Uh, again, we want to work with people for what that might mean, even if working with homeless or whatever the issues are, or, or people who are addicted. But there needs to be 
some sort of transfer of responsibility so that uh, we don't have gaps in service. And that's what I'm really concerned about. I want to go back to as the protests started. Initially, they were fairly peaceful. And then there was an element that came to those protests that obviously had other ideas in mind. And it turned violent and it got out of hand. And those types of things continued for quite a while. Do you feel, looking back, and it's a kind of Monday morning quarterbacking, I guess, that were you as prepared for that as you should have been? Or did it get out of, your, out of control? You know, looking back, we could have done a lot of things better. I don't call that Monday morning quarterbacking. I think that we always should be looking back and debriefing what went well and what didn't go well so that we can do better next time. And there clearly were areas where I'd be the first to say we could have done things better. Uh, and there's some things that we could have been more prepared for. The first night, May 29th, which was a Friday night, we had about 150 or so Black Bloc Antifa folks um, show up in Seattle um, unexpectedly. You know, they, they came right up Fifth Avenue. I, I, was, I was out there. I saw them. They were throwing rocks and bottles and frozen bottles of water and pointing green lasers into officers' eyes and um, breaking up into small groups. And um, we were pretty much chasing them around the city all night long. They did a high level of property damage and destruction in the Chinatown ID area. A lot of people were very concerned about it were thinking that the police had abandoned them, but they didn't because I was here all night. I actually slept in my office. I didn't even go home. I know that when the small groups would break up and appear in other areas, we were having to deploy resources down to find them. So there was there were some gaps in um, our ability to find people, and that was difficult. And that was on the 29th. And then the next night, uh, the next day, there were very large demonstrations in downtown Seattle, way more than 10,000 people showing up. And within those groups, uh, a very peaceful demonstrators there to really uh, lament the murder of George Floyd and to talk about issues of rights, etc. There were people embedded in those groups that really were there to do harm to officers. And I saw those folks. I'm not you know, one who just heard back about it. I was down there. I saw for myself uh, the rocks, the bottles, the projectiles that were being thrown, and then the incessant looting, the cars set on fire, the Molotov cocktails. All those things did happen. And so while the vast majority of people were not there doing that destructive behavior, some folks told me they were there. They didn't even know it was happening. There were just so many people, but it was occurring. And Our reaction and response to that was our typical response to to disperse crowds using blast balls and pepper spray and um, CS or what is otherwise known as tear gas to uh, dissipate the crowd. And the real problem with that is that so many people were there. And I keep telling folks, even my own family, when they moved up to the East Precinct in particular the next night, was there uh, as part of the uh, peaceful demonstrators. And so everybody gets affected. It's not as if that CS gas or whatever it is that we're, you know, the pepper spray only affects a, a directed individual. It's, it's crowd dispersal. But many people were there and they felt, and I understand it completely, like they were there being peaceful and now they're getting pepper spray or CS gas and they're mad at the police. And so I, I understand that. I think in hindsight, we, if we could find a better or different way we're still to do things, we would. Uh, because it really created a problem for us 
because so many people were angry, but it was really probably the four or 500 of the 8,000 that we really were trying to address. And so I think we need to find ways to better address specific individuals and crowds. I'm not sure what that is yet. I think there's a lot of discussion about that. I most recently asked the um, International Association of Chiefs of Police to start bringing together groups, uh, professionals, to talk about how we might be able to address some of those issues and not have the entire uh, crowd affected that way when it's just a, a few who are really creating the problems. You brought up the, thir- the, the precinct, the East Precinct. I never really understood who made the decision to leave. Was that your decision? Was that the mayor's decision? Yeah, it wasn't my decision. And it really wasn't the mayor's decision. And it's so funny because I think people made these assumptions because I said, did anybody ever say it was the mayor's decision? No. And I certainly didn't say it was my decision because it wasn't. But I will tell you what happened. I think it was just a confluence of events uh, that I've tried to explain multiple times, but I'm happy to continue doing that so that everybody gets the same story here, which is the truth. The barricades were up at the East Precinct on 11th and Pine uh, and just north of that on 13th and Pine and the surrounding area. Every night, as you know, for multiple nights, uh, we were dealing with the, you know, the crowd comes, people march and demonstrate and protest. After multiple hours, you know, the rocks and bottles come, the officers deploy pepper spray, blast balls, and ultimately see us into the crowd uh, and causing, you know, this is causing a a huge level of disturbance and disruption. We really wanted to try to get away from that repeated set of uh, offenses occurring. And the uh, mayor's office asked that we remove the barricades and remove what uh, many had deemed the flashpoint to where these uh, incidents were happening. So we did. We um, didn't want to do that, but recognize that, you know, we didn't want to continue doing the same thing over and over. So the barricades were removed. But what happened was that left a large influx of people, like right up against the precinct. And uh, the fire marshal one, uh, not the fire marshal, the fire chief, Chief Scoggins, had noted that there was a real fire threat to the building, particularly as a number of buildings around the country have been burnt down. Uh, and there was a specific threat of burning down the precincts here in the city. And then we had a lot of sensitive material within the precincts, you know, uh, lots of uh, personal information, identifying information, criminal records, criminal history records, and weapons that are stored within the precinct. So um, the commanders on scene wanted to move that stuff out of the precinct with the influx of people around it and the fire hazard that was being presented. So we took all those things out of the precinct uh, to a different location and got everybody just to get that stuff out of there, out of the way. But unfortunately, uh, it was never our intent not to put the people back, but we weren't able to get back into the precinct, to be honest with you. There was just, at that point, the streets were open, the crowds came in, the barricades that we had moved were now set up by a different entity along all the checkpoints. Uh, and we weren't able to physically get back into that precinct at that time safely. And so that therein started the negotiation to get back to the precinct and get and to get back into the area. Um, and it was our own mo- removing of the barricades that allowed that to happen, again, unbeknownst to us. And then we weren't able to, once that group set up, um, armed people set up the barricades around, we had a whole other situation to deal with. I want to go back to the defunding issue. 
and that is, have you met with council members right now? There's a majority that it looks like it's, uh, I guess, veto proof at this point that if they wanted to move on the 50% cut, they could. And two people, as I understand it, Deborah Juarez and, and Alex uh, Pedersen are, have not made their decision yet. Although it does seem like Deborah Juarez at least has indicated that she would back some changes. But have you met with council members to talk about what they want and where they're coming from? Yeah, I, I wasn't, we haven't had that discussion as yet. I've been hearing, as most people have, getting information through the media and social media and other avenues about what's um, being determined and what's being talked about. Um, but they uh, have not provided any documentation specifically with what they're doing and what their plans are to uh, provide public safety, community safety, if you will, uh, if they cut the department by 50%. So I, you know, hearing this and knowing this and knowing it to be part of their council uh, briefing, was looking at what that would mean to our department if it happened. And I uh, took it upon myself to do some evaluation and plan for contingencies and send that information over to the mayor so that there would be some clear ideas about what potentially could happen to our organization if we're cut by 50%. Uh, but I was not asked for that information. And now the mayor has uh, come up with her own possible cuts, not 50%. And are you agreeable on what the mayor has come up with? Yeah, well, look, we know we're going to have to cut the budget some. I mean, we are in a COVID-19 environment where businesses are closed down, people are not working, the tax base for the city, it's been, ma been made very clear by the um, the city budget office that we were going to be in a deficit. So not only the police department, but every city organization is going to have to tighten the belt. It's going to have to trim off, you know, I'm saying trim the fat, if you will, but ideally they're going to have to suffer through some budget cuts because of the current environment, the current economic environment that we're in. So I don't think that was a surprise to anybody, but this idea of just lopping off 50% of the police department certainly was something new and unexpected. There have been officer-involved shooting deaths recently uh, in which officers have been killed. Do you think that will have an impact on this conversation? You know, I'm not sure uh, what is going to uh, really impact it. I think that there are so many complexities and so many different things that we're looking at when it comes to the issue of you know, criminal justice and policing. There are the officers, of course, and their safety. There's the public and their safety. There's our suspects, our victims, our witnesses, and their safety. There's the idea of community engagement and how we build trust and how we have fairness. There's you know, issues of traffic stops and disparity. There's so many things that we need to cover and look at that there's not gonna be one particular area that fixes it or breaks it. Uh, for all of us. So I think that'll be part of the discussion, but that won't be the sole focus. You know, Chief, you are in an interesting situation because you are a Black woman running an institution that many in the Black community do not have faith or trust in. And yet you have a balancing act because you probably have experienced your own situations maybe with police in your time in your life, or at least you know those who have, and now you are at the top job. How do you balance that? And how do you 
function in a time when there is such a focus on racial justice today? Well, you know, Enrique, I've always believed in racial justice and racial equity. You know, my family has a long history of working on these issues from being part of the NAACP to the Urban League and just working and being here for so many years, five generations in the Pacific Northwest. So I think it's not neither or. I mean, it's both and. You know, absolutely, I believe in racial justice. I want to see equity for all of us, and particularly for Black people and African Americans who suffered at the hand of in, hands of injustice for many, many, many eras and decades. That said, I also believe in doing what's right and, and being a part of the change and bringing about change and fairness uh, to the degree that I can in any area that I've been in. And I believe that the policing can be an honorable profession. It should be. But, and then we need to root out people who aren't thinking that way uh, and move it forward. I mean, we just can't stay stagnant. We have to find a way to move forward, to bring all these things together. And everything I do, I operate from a position of integrity and honesty and trying to do the right thing. And I think that those guiding principles really have helped me both in my job and in my personal life. And I think that if we um, all work together and just recognize that, I'm sure you've seen injustices as a journalist or people who are in the education system, or people like my daughter who are in healthcare. None of us is immune to that. And you know, whether it's racial injustice, sometimes it's people who just don't like women, or LGBTQ, or a whole host of things. But we can't just stop functioning because there are people out there that have these um, you know, bad views. We've got to both you know, get involved and get engaged and move forward on these issues. I think that's incredibly important. Do you feel that we're at a generational shift in time going on right now when it comes to race in America? I think that um, for a whole lot of reasons, you know, that it's become more prevalent, um, whether that's through some of the administrative changes, along with some of the laws that we've seen. And then now we have this COVID-19 healthcare crisis, which has also illuminated some of the disparities we have in other areas in employment, in economics, in healthcare, that all of that coming together at you know one time has certainly put a laser focus on some of the disparities that we have to deal with. Yeah, there are a lot of disparities, that's for sure. No doubt yeah. about that. I want to ask you a couple of quick questions here as we uh, kind of wrap things up. The mayor is fighting this recall petition against her, and one of the issues that uh, she brought up in her efforts to, to stop the recall was that the decision to use whatever chemical agents to during the, the protests was not her decision. She said it was your decision. Do you feel like you're having to take responsibility for that? Is that the case? Is she's throwing it on you? It was my decision. I mean, listen, I'm not going to take on anybody else's decision that wasn't mine, but in all fairness, you know, there was a temporary restraining order that cited very clearly under the circumstances under which we could use um, less lethal munitions uh, to include glass balls, pepper spray, and CS gas. And particularly with CS gas, it had to be a life safety situation and it had to be approved by the chief of police. On the occasion that we did use it, um, the, the situation that was related to me was a life safety situation and I approved the use on that particular occasion. And so I wouldn't cover for anybody. I'm just gonna be honest about it. You know, I stand by my decisions. 
I have to make decisions that protect people, even if they're uh, decisions that people don't like. Obviously, there were going to be some, you know, some controversy around it. Uh, and, you know, we're working forward, looking forward to working through and making sure that uh, we have maybe some other options in the future. But that was what was presented to me. So, you know, we already had one shooting that afternoon uh, at a demonstration uh, when that person was taken into custody. Later on in the evening, things got uh, volatile again. Another person was running around in the crowd with a gun. Um, we needed to disperse the crowd. It wasn't working with the other um, options that we were utilizing. And I was very concerned that we were going to have someone else in the crowd or one of the officers or somebody um, killed. And so we, I thought it was important that we use whatever we had available to us to disperse the crowd. And so um, that was my determination at that time. Um, very quickly about Donnie Chin. I know that homicide investigators say they have no comment on the investigation, but is that invest, it's been almost five years since Donnie Chin was gunned down in the international district. He was a guy that, you know, was, uh, so helpful to so many people there in, in trying to make sure that the uh, Chinatown International District was safe for the elderly and others. A lot of people wondering what's happening with that. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people think that we've just walked away from the case or aren't looking at it, but the case is still an open investigation. Um, we still uh, are looking at anything that we can. We know, the detectives know that somebody knows what happened. We know that um, somebody was there and saw it and witnesses and knows who's, who was involved. So every opportunity that we have to try to glean any additional information and find out who the perpetrators were, we do that. We don't know when we're gonna when we're gonna be able to solve this, but it is not uh, a closed case. It's not a case that we aren't still working on every lead that we possibly can track down. And stuff does trickle in, and we do uh, follow up on each of those um, leads. And we obviously stay in touch with Constance periodically, just checking in with her so that she knows that we haven't given up on that case. You know, we solved the case not that long ago that was, I believe, almost 50 years old. I certainly don't want that to be the case here. <laughs> Let yeah, me be I don't think people want that either, yeah. Yeah, obviously we want to solve it uh, much sooner than that. But I'm just saying that we don't give up on these cases. That's the point I'm trying to make here and to illustrate. I mean, Donnie Chen was loved by so many people, including officers and firefighters, who really, really, truly uh, considered him a friend. Uh, and everyone was devastated, and certainly the community as well. I just can tell you that we're going to continue to look at everything that we can. We know that there were particular gangs that may have been involved in a shootout, and uh, somebody knows some information about what happened there. And uh, as we you know, are able to uh, talk to more people and glean information, we continue to try to follow up. That was Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best in an interview that I recorded with her on July 17th. Uh, we're joined now by Erica C. Barnett. The C is for Crank, by the way. Erica is a contributor to the South Seattle Emerald, and Erica is here to provide analysis of our conversation with the chief and much more. I say more because we, as we are recording this, talked to the chief a week ago, but so much more has been happening since then. But on the defunding issue, Erica, your reaction and analysis of what you heard in the interview. Yeah, I think that um, the chief is really wedded, and as is the mayor, to this idea that 
protesters and the city council and everyone who is saying defund the police is saying defund immediately right now, cut 50%. She kept using kind of this this violent language about lopping off and hacking off 50% of the police budget, which I am surprised that they continue with this narrative because the city council has made it really clear that that's not what they're saying. In fact, they've made it really clear, as I reported last week, that what they're saying is we want to cut 50% of the remaining budget for this year. So that's about $65 million. They're already part of the way there. So there's a lot of agreement, in fact, between the mayor and city council about some of the cuts. And then they're saying, and then we'll we'll work out how to do this on, you know, in an, a, a fast but incremental way and how to replace some of these functions. So I don't think anybody who's, you know, in any position of power is proposing to just cut 50%. I know that that makes a good soundbite and it sounds very scary, but I don't think it's accurate to what anyone is proposing. I think everybody's uh, trying to put forward their their soundbite on all of this. And obviously the the chief and the mayor are doing that and the council. But I, I don't think anybody's doing a very good job about really explaining all of this. So then you have people in the mainstream just freaking out. Well, I think a lot of it is like, you can't really explain exactly what you're going to replace this portion of the police uh, budget with until there's a plan. And what kind of frustrates me is that the mayor and the city council and the police chief could be a lot closer together if they would all sort of be honest about what is being proposed and what is not being proposed. No one can say, here's what the plan is because the plan hasn't been devised yet. I think everybody actually agrees on that because there are no easy answers right now. You know, people just need to say, look, this is going to take a little bit of time. There are things we can do right now. And, you know, I do think that the city council probably could come up with $65 million or so in cuts, and I think they they very well might um, in the short term. But the police budget is more than $400 million, and cutting $200 million is not something that's going to happen tomorrow. It's not something that's going to happen this year. And I think that the frustration that I have is that everyone won't just sort of agree on this fact and say, look, we're all on the same page about how long this is going to take. We may not all be on the same page about what the cuts are actually going to look like. And maybe there's no way to get there because the impression I got from um, Chief Best was that she believes that we actually need to be expanding the police department. And she made that point about how as recently as last year, the city council was putting more money into recruitment. And that's absolutely true. But I also think, you know, facts on the ground has cha- have changed and the political environment that we exist in in the entire United States has changed. So that's the conversation we're having now. But I, I don't think the chief is there. I think you've really done a good job of just explaining to me and to the public out there about what the real deal is with this, because uh, I'm not sure I, I didn't really understand that going into all of this, because I don't think it's been made clear by all parties involved. Yeah. So, Erica, what do you think is the largest impediment to them sort of coalescing around, hey, we we are a little closer uh, than, you know, what has been reported? Well, I mean, I do think that the chief and the mayor, you know, I don't know that the mayor necessarily has any super strong feelings about this, but I do think that the chief is in a position where she first of all, is really dug in politically. I think she's got to answer to the police union and she's got to answer to the police force. You know, she was talking in the interview about, you know, this is cutting people's pensions and their livelihoods and all this stuff. I think she doesn't want to make any cuts in her department and she is defensive of her department. And that is perfectly understandable. She's a department head and she thinks and she's a cop and she thinks that, you know, police are a really fundamental part of 
you know, how we respond to, to, to violence and crime and problems um, in society, right? So I think there's just a fundamental philosophical difference that I don't know, you know, you're ever going to bridge with somebody who's been in the police department for 30 years, um, in the military, I believe, before that, and is just really wedded to this idea that police are first responders to all kinds of issues, not just violent crimes. What about the union and all of this? Because they are a huge factor, contract negotiations coming up, nobody's saying yet about uh, where they are with that. You know, some of the changes that they're talking about, that the city council is talking about making this year, I think that the council is being, you know, wildly over-optimistic about them because, so, as you said, so many of these issues have to be negotiated. The last police contract took, you know, years to negotiate, and I think that we can expect that the same thing is going to happen with this one, especially with Mike Solon uh, being head of the, I'm not sorry if I'm not saying his name properly, but um, being the head of the um, of SPOG, you know, and very, very much on the fund police more side of things. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that that's absolutely going to be a huge problem. Now, some of these things are not necessarily subject to bargaining, but I think that there are, you know, in addition to the union considerations, there's a consent decree. The city is going to challenge, challenge, challenge every step of the way. And again, this is another point where they're actually, they actually could just, both sides could just acknowledge that this is going to take a long time anyway, because it has to be negotiated with the union. And um, I think that would go a long way to like reaching a realistic point where people can agree that this is a process (laughs) and then actually start discussing it instead of sniping about, you know, who's trying to cut everything now, because that's not possible anyway. It's just a, it's a rhetorical talking point. What and who are the Youth Liberation Front? (laughs) Active in the protests this weekend and seemingly involved in all of the mess that's going out there. Uh, burning buildings and throwing stuff at the cops and causing chaos? Well, yeah, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I'm not on the ground right now talking to folks out there um, in this in this group. But I do want to just say, you know, yes, there are definitely criminal acts that are happening and explosives have been thrown. And I just got a press uh, release from the police department that was just photos of all the officers' injuries. And I do think that it is important in reporting on these protests to put those acts in perspective of the overall, you know, amount of thousands of people that are out there protesting and 43 arrests. You know, while there's always a temptation to focus on the violent acts, what I saw when I was watching the feeds uh, on Saturday was, you know, a lot of nonviolent protesters standing there and getting pepper sprayed in the face. And while this particular group is new, at least, you know, to Seattle, there's this ongoing story that I think, you know, we don't want to miss, which is that the city council banned tear gas. They banned some of these munitions and other weapons, pepper spray. And um, because of a series of uh, court rulings and events, uh, they were allowed. And, you know, we're kind of back in the same standoff. You know, whatever the group is that's actually leading the protest at any given time, we're right back where we were with Chop and Chaz on Capitol Hill. And I think that um, that that's really the story right now. Right. At least they're not using tear gas. They can't, you know, so far haven't used tear gas. I think that's kind of a semantic distinction, though, because you're right. That's they're, true. They're pepper spraying people in the face and they're pepper spraying into the crowd. And, and they both burn. Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, they both burn. Yep. 
What I kind of I want to say in uh, on the the tear gas point. I mean, has you know uh, Chief Best or the Seattle Police Department have they sort of stated what it, I mean? I I know there's a lot of people who still don't kind of understand. You know, what is the appropriate you know response in terms of you know when should tear gas be used and when shouldn't it? I mean, have do the police have the police like stated when it should be used and, and when it shouldn't? Or you know that just seems to continue to be unclear to me. Yeah, I feel I think um, that in and I know this interview was a week ago, but in the interview you did, Enrique, with the uh, with the chief, I mean, she said this is our standard response to this type of uh, of demonstration where you have some people throwing bottles and, and rocks and things like that. And then she said, you know, we need to look at if there's a better way to respond to I think she said 400 or 500 people. I do not um, believe that it was that many people. Um, who are doing, you know, these kind of violent acts. But it does seem like, you know, this is this is the standard response. I mean, and we've seen it over and over again. So I think that the chief would say this is our practice and it's in line with the consent decree and it's in line with um, our de-escalation training. And I think the city council, which passed a law saying that they can't use any of these weapons at any time, would say that, no, they're never appropriate. You know that's another that's another impasse um, that the court is going to have to decide. But uh, but you know if the court decides in the in the city's favor, that's the law is that it's never appropriate to use any of these weapons. These protests, what do you think? Do you think they'll help uh, the police in uh, the opposition to defunding and everybody else that says no, it's a bad idea? I think on a national level, nobody is budging right now. And so I don't think that, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of concern that people are, you know, people nationally are looking at Portland and they're looking at Seattle and they're saying, oh my gosh, like these, these giant, these cities are out of control and we need to, um, we need to, you know, bring in the feds, bring in more police, you know, really crack down in a big way. I don't think that that is very likely to sway anybody who isn't already on the side of a sort of law and order approach to policing to cities. And I don't think it's going to, you know, make a bunch of new Trump supporters, because I think, you know, on this issue, people are really dug in. And the people that believe the feds should be in Seattle and in Portland believe that. And the people who believe that they shouldn't be believe what they believe. I don't see a lot of a lot of minds being changed one way or another on this issue right now. Well, I know you don't see a lot of minds being changed, but do you think that the whole role of with the feds coming into to Portland and Seattle, maybe that escalated these protests? I mean, I know there was some reporters who were saying that, hey, you know, these things were, these protests were dying down in Portland and then, you know, the feds came in and then all of a sudden it's, you know, it's flamed back up. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, and the protests here were in solidarity with the ones in Portland. So I think that it has been, you know, throwing fuel on the dying, I mean, I wouldn't say the dying embers, but the embers of the protests. You know, I don't know that the protests were dying down in the sense that they were going to stop. I think we're going to keep having protests for a while, you know, until things change substantially or, you know, our people are forced inside by the winter. I don't know. (laughs) But, um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think that the idea behind bringing the feds in was to inflame things to, um, you know, if you believe in conspiracy theories, to inflame things, to sort of uh, turn people toward the uh, the Trump side of things, you know, in advance of the election. Uh, again, I don't think that that's going to work or change any minds, but it definitely made things every it made everything sort of flame back up again. So we are going to continue our focus on the debate over defunding the police. Uh, on our next episode, we're going to hear from Council Member 
Tammy Morales about her support for cutting the police department's budget, and maybe we'll get more of a clear explanation, as, as Erica pointed out here. And also, thank you, Erica C. Barnett, for joining us, the C's for Crank. Erica is the author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery, and Erica is going to uh, talk about her book in an upcoming episode of Life on the Margins. Erica, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, give us your insights. Yeah, thank you, Erica. Thank you. Life on the Margins is a production of the South Seattle Emerald. Our music is courtesy of Seattle artist, Dre's. Our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. Stay safe, be well, and we'll talk more later. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all hood until we didn't see crept in. And the blacks went naked and gentrification came. Golf and Franklin, robberies ain't even the same. Mark my words, it gonna be white boys all on the team. I don't reminisce when I drive.